ask you, you ever been stuck in a circumstance where kind of your general feeling, your um, kind of the weight of what you sense, even maybe something that might leave your mouth is uh, this phrase, this is just a mess. Raise your hand if you have like been in that kind of a situation before. Right, we can all relate to that. We know what that feels like. You walk into it, there's chaos, there are things falling apart, there's things not going as they should, and what weighs on you is the sense that this is just a mess. And so when we recognize that, when we come to that realization, when we admit, like, okay, there actually is a problem here, what do we see as the right response to something that is a mess? What do you do with a mess? Well, you clean it up. That's right. <laughs> That's right. We try to clean it up. Uh, so a way of saying that, like we encounter circumstances in our lives that, that feel like messes, we try to escape the mess. We, we, we uh, create situations where we remove the mess from ourselves. Right, so here's some examples of this. Maybe when you hear something like, this is just a mess, you might think of times of financial hardship. Right, so when you think of times of financial hardship that are really messy, what do you do? How do you start cleaning up the mess? Well, uh, you kind of create some steps, right? You have to sort through your debt. Uh, you have to get your spending under control, which means that you kind of have to figure out where and how much money is going to all of the different places that it's going to. And then you have to kind of manage your bills, kind of get those under control, understand where everything's going. And then you kind of, even after that point, if you get your spending under control, there could be a reality. You need to consider alternative sources of income. You might need to take on a second job or a third job, right? But what are you trying to do with all of that? You are trying to create a solution to help you escape the mess that you're in, right? That's what you're doing. So you create these orders. So what about some other examples? Maybe you think of like, when I talk about things feeling like a mess, you relate to like relationship problems or relational challenges, like maybe you're in a situation where multiple people around you are hurt and uh, everyone is kind of bringing baggage from their past onto the table. And so what do you do? Well, you, you kind of have to teach some communication skills, set some boundaries for how we talk to each other. You, uh, you have to work together to determine, determine the things that maybe are like most agreed upon for you. Right? And, then, and then you also have to determine and face the key differences between you. Right, These are all things that you have to work through in relational messes. Or another option, if you run into this relational messes, you could just recognize that this situation is so toxic that the best thing you need to do, like the thing that you actually need to do, is just walk out. Right? And so with all of that, what are you trying to do? Well, you're, you're kind of seeing that this is a mess, and you're trying to end the discord and escape that mass. Right, so I don't know about y'all, but I am a solution-oriented person. Meaning, like, if you give me a problem, I am going to begin to walk through the steps before you even tell me that you're looking for an answer to the problem. I am already working through the steps to help you create a solution for what you are going through, right? That's kind of just how I think. It's how I function. When I see a mess, I develop a series of steps to help me escape that mess, right? And here's the thing, it is often a good and right thing to try to work yourself out of messes, to create solutions and to go through next steps. But there is a challenge to all of this, and it is this. If your life is spent 
escaping messes, you will find hope in escaping messes. If you spend your energy and your time and your toil trying to get out of messes all the time, you know what you're going to think is most hopeful for you is just eliminating all the mess from your life, right? So I don't need to tell many of you this because there are people in this church who have recently gone through significant upheaval in their lives, right? I don't need to tell you that there are some messes that you cannot escape. For example, grief, sickness, past trauma. Like those are not just things that you can create next steps and will them away by your power. There are times actually when the only promise that you have in a mess is that things will just get messier from here. Like that's the only thing that you can count on. You just know things are going to get harder. There are some sources of fear and insecurity that do not just go away. There are hardships that do not simply have a step-by-step solution. And then there's, so there's that. There are just problems that don't go away, right? But then there are, there are realities that you may be in a mess and an escape may be easy for you, but what you know is actually it, it might be the right thing for you to stay in the mess, Right? So if our hope is in escaping the mess, how do you find hope if escape is not the option? Like if you don't have a way out, right? So, so this gets us into a series for Advent called Fear Not. Now you may think of the word Advent and think of the chocolate Advent calendar that you have in your house where you work through each day from December 1st to December 25th and take, or maybe just December 1st to December 2nd and take apart each of those chocolates through your Advent calendar. But actually, Advent means something. Advent uh, is the word waiting, right? Or arrival. So we use kind of those two ideas, the idea of like waiting for something to come, waiting for something to get here. It means uh, looking forward to something that is coming. And so in the church, Advent is a season where we think about God's people. And they were awaiting for the arrival of their Messiah. They waited after their captivity in Babylon and were waiting for this deliverer to come. And they waited after their temple was rebuilt after it had been torn down. And they waited while God was silent and did not speak through his prophets for 400 years. And they waited while political entities actively oppressed them. And then we pick up on the part of the story where they are still here waiting under Roman rule. And the Apostle Matthew is going to walk us through history for just a second, to kind of zero us in on a particular family at a particular point in time. So we're going to start in Matthew 18, but real quick, I just kind of want to run you through Matthew uh, 1, verses 1 through 17, because this is what you get. Uh, You see on the surface, in verses 1 through 17, a very nice and neat and well-put-together genealogy, right? Uh, And so for what it's worth, when you talk about genealogies, they appear nice and neat on the surface, But even if you think about your own family, you know that under the surface of what appears nice and neat might be a little bit of a mess, right? And so this genealogy is particularly messy when you consider all of the events that are connected to it. So it starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham uh, pretended that his wife was his sister. 
two times, actually, uh, so that he could not uh, get in trouble with the Egyptian authorities when he went through there, right? Uh, so Abraham did that. Uh, Isaac, Isaac was actually not Abraham's firstborn son. You think of the story of Isaac and Ishmael. There were all of these troubles because Abraham kind of jumped the gun on God's promises. And then you think of Jacob. Jacob actually stole the birthright from Esau, who was the firstborn, right? So you get uh, additional promises with that. Uh, and then Judah is listed. And not only is Judah listed, but then you have this person called Tamar listed. By the way, this was uh, this story between Judah and Tamar, full of deceit. It is an inappropriate relationship, but it comes up in the story. Uh, Rahab's name appears in this genealogy. She's a prostitute, by the way. Uh, Ruth is a childless widow who gets remarried by somebody else uh, whose name was Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So then we get into the line of David, which is great. Yeah, David's this big king, and he is successful, but then he had this... uh, child named Solomon, and it does not say, it says by Uriah, but here's the interesting thing, Uriah is the guy that he had murdered, right? Like that, like he's the, so David got Uriah's wife pregnant and then had Uriah murdered, and that's what the story, when the story includes Uriah's name in here, we learn about that, that's a little bit of a mess, and then after that, you have a line of kings the majority of whom justified idolatry in their nation, and actually, like, the majority of the blame gets put on them for Israel's, or Judah's captivity into exile. So that's kind of, like, you don't see that on the surface when you read the genealogy, but that is the mess that is verses 1 through 17. And that sets the stage for where we find ourselves in this recounting of history. So verse 18 says this, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So just a note here, Christ is not a last name, and it is not like the kind of the second half of some people's favorite cuss word, right? Uh, The birth, the word Christ literally means the Messiah, right? So we talked about what Israel was waiting for year after year through captivity and under 400 years of silence, They're waiting for a Messiah. And so Matthew says, Jesus, the Messiah, the one Israel was waiting for, his birth took place in this way. So he goes on in verse 18 and he says this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew, when he's writing these things, he assumes that you know what all of this means and all the social and legal realities behind what he's saying. Uh, But unfortunately, we live like 2,000 years later, and so we just don't have all of this context. So when he says betrothed, there are some significant things that we need to grasp. So first of all, uh, a betrothal was a waiting period of one year where it would be determined that uh, a husband and wife would be joined together, but then you enter into this one year long waiting period. And uh, for what it's worth, their marriage was probably planned from birth. It was arranged and they are committed to each other. There is no question about their commitment and whether or not they are going to be married. But there's the reality that they have no physical contact or physical relationship of any kind during this time of their betrothal period. That's actually a part of the law. You cannot have like a physical relationship during this period of time. 
And uh, so then at the end of this uh, year-long period, there's this seven-day ceremony where uh, the, the husband goes and gets the wife from her father's house, and then they come together, right? That's like the story of the betrothal. And there are, like, for what it's worth, these are the honorable and legal requirements of what a betrothal is. This is very important for a society that is very much built on honor and shame. Right, how they relate to each other, how they understand people's places in society. It's all determined by the honorable things that you do and the lack of shameful things that you do. So if they do have a physical relationship, let's like qualify what this means, they are then required to get married immediately. Like that is what is uh, put on them by the law. So they live with uh, this means that if they get married early, everybody now knows what happened. They live with the public dishonor of lacking self-control. And on top of that, they lived as a family who would have been shunned from influence in society. Right? So this is what all of this means. When he's telling us that they were betrothed, there are all of these implications of what it means to do a good and right betrothal and what it means to not carry out a good and right betrothal. And Mary, uh, Matthew is telling us, he's saying, the Holy Spirit got her pregnant while she was still a virgin. And before Mary and Joseph had completed their betrothal period, all of this had happened, meaning that these two people and their child and whatever children come after that would have to bear the social weight of having broken the law. And so you look at this situation, and at the very beginning, in the very first verse, the sense that you get is that sense that we've all experienced before of this is just a mess. Like, how am I supposed to do anything about this? How do we have any solution to the kinds of things that are going to come against this? So, so considering this in line with other parts of the genealogy, though, it should be no surprise. But, but here's what Matthew is also reminding us of when he gives us the genealogy, and then in verse 18 gives us this little bit of a mess. That even though there is havoc and chaos throughout these histories... God was at work the whole way through. Despite human sinfulness and despite the hands of human sin trying to kind of take things into their own power and take control for themselves, God was at work the whole way through. And that remains true, actually most true here in this story. So let's look at Joseph's then response to the mess. In verse 19, it says this. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So let's talk about everything that this pregnancy would mean for Joseph. Because this is a society that is fueled by honor, this would be a public shame for Joseph and the family that he came from. Meaning, Joseph, in being and in, in kind of going through with this, if his, uh, the person he's betrothed to gets pregnant, the family that he comes from bears the shame that Joseph, you know, kind of puts upon them which means that he would lose social clout in uh, the, the places and spaces where he would have relationships. For what it's worth, this event right here, this would potentially plague Joseph's professional life. Meaning whatever he was going to do, whatever kind of work that he was going to do, how he was going to make money, he was going to have this social reality uh, kind of hanging over his head wherever he went. In fact, his family, they would like become the butt of everybody's joke. 
right? That's kind of what happened for what it's worth when they, uh, Jesus went into the temple and started teaching, Luke 4, 20 through 22. He pulls out the scroll of Isaiah. He says these amazing things. He talks about how God is going to deliver the captives, set people free, bring sight to the blind. And then verse 20, it says, after he said these things, he rolled the scroll up and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And he's doing this in his hometown, by the way. And in verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Isn't that Joseph's son? Because, isn't that like Joseph's bastard child, right? The one that he shouldn't have bore. Isn't that Joseph who bears the shame of having went through and not having the self-control that he ought to have and uh, kind of broke the law? Isn't that Joseph's son? Right, every family member, this whole family would be labeled as illegitimate. And, uh, and so consider this possibility, that Joseph, there's the reality. I, like, I don't know, this is all what if and conjecture, but go with me for a second. Like, Joseph could have had very much a very different career path than the one that he ended up with. He could have been set to make money in a different way, but the reality is, because of everything that happened, he kind of had to settle for being a carpenter because he couldn't get the social clout or maintain the social clout to do anything else. Right? So, so this impacts every facet of his life. This impacts his future. Right? Like, uh, so, so if Joseph and, like, and you have Joseph and Mary together, and so he accepts then, because if he goes through with this, if he marries Mary, uh, he accepts the social guilt and the consequence for something he did not do. Right? This pregnancy would actually flip the entirety of their lives on its head and the entirety of their hope for the future. Because remember, these circumstances, these getting out of messes things, like the, the things that we have in this life, security, stability, the kind of life that we try to build, the kind of profession that we make for ourselves, our hope for the future is tied up in what we're able to do here. And now all of that's going to be jeopardized by this event for Joseph. So for him to to take Mary as a wife would be to accept all of that. And so Joseph sees this mess. He sees everything falling apart. and, and, And what does he decide to do? He decides that he is going to make a way of escape. He starts problem solving. He starts working his way through to figure out, what he can do to take care of this. And, and so it says that he is a just man because he resolved to divorce her quietly. Why does it make him just that he resolved to divorce her? Well, I mean, for him to accept guilt and shame for something that he didn't do, like, why, that, that, like it is perfectly acceptable for him to determine that he is not going to accept that guilt and shame. And then it refers to him being just. Like what it's saying is he's trying to make sure that Mary is taken care of and that she does not have to bear the shame of this thing that happened to her. And so like potentially what this means is that he is going uh, maybe to take Mary to a different town or a different location where people don't know her, where she could say, uh, my husband died, uh, you know, and so she doesn't have to bear the weight of appearing to be an adulteress in the eyes of other people, 
right? There are all of these things that he could be doing. He's thinking through possibilities of how can I divorce her in a way that will still not make her suffer the shame of having eyes of others upon me, of seeing what I've done, even though she didn't do it. In any other circumstance, and this is what it's saying, in any other circumstance, it would actually be right and acceptable for, for Joseph to do this. For Joseph to set her up in a way that she doesn't have to bear the shame of this thing. And, and this actually works in accord with his just nature. He's trying to find a way to help her. And so, so he's kind of thinking of ways to help her avoid the social implications. And, and he's responding to her with a compassion, a concern for her future. And with the reality that he's not going to accept on himself and his own reality kind of the weight of this thing that he has no control over. So um, what's clear is this. Joseph's sense is that his best hope in this messy situation is to escape it, to find a way out. And the law gives him plenty of space to find a way out. So watch what happens next. Verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So in the midst of this mess for Joseph, all of the insecurity, all of the concern for his future, for Mary's future, all of the worry, all of the problem solving that he's trying to do, a messenger from God shows up to Joseph and says, do not fear. And what things are connected to the not fearing? Well, he says, Joseph, son of David. Well, Dave, uh, Joseph would probably immediately go, David's not my father. But then his mind would immediately be, be drawn to the fact that, but I am in the line of David. And if you're talking about the son of David, that has some connection to the promise given to David about a king who was going to come after him in his line who would be the savior of Israel. And then he says uh, that this is from the Holy Spirit. That somehow in the middle of this really messy situation, God is miraculously working. So then he goes on, the angel, in verse 21 and says this, She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. We don't always like, oh, Jesus is just his name, right? Actually, like what, what the angel just said there, the name Yeshua literally means God saves. So the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name God saves. For he will save the people from their sins. And why does he say this? Well, because mess after mess in that genealogy seemed to destroy God's purposes. Sin after sin seemed to wreak havoc on what God was doing. But what's the promise? He will save his people from the source of all of that mess. So in verses 22 and 23, it goes on. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So the angel gives all of this promise. So then what you have is a situation that after not hearing one word from God for 400 years, Matthew reminds us that what happened right here is actually connected to a prophecy that took place 700 years ago. That what what Joseph is experiencing right now is a part of a word that God spoke over 700 years ago and now is working itself out in Joseph's time and place in history in his life, which means that God is actively fulfilling the promises that he made all the way back then in this moment right now. So the encouragement to Joseph then, Joseph, fear not. God keeps his promises. Fear not, Joseph. God carries out his ages-old plan. The plan, by the way, that he made to the serpent all the way back in the beginning in the book of Genesis when he said, uh, there is going to be one who comes and he is going to step and crush your head and you're just going to bruise your heel. He's just going to bruise your heel. Right? That God will right the wrongs of history. Fear not, Joseph. Fear not, Joseph. God is bringing salvation. So it's worth noting then, that's not how I want to be comforted. Like, those aren't the, if I'm stuck in the middle of a mess, those are not the words that I want to hear. That's not what makes me feel good. That's not where my hope is inclined to be. Like, what's remarkable about these words of comfort when he says, fear not, and assuming after he says, fear not, you have some words of comfort coming, the angel doesn't say, fear not, Joseph, this will be easier than you think it is. Uh, Fear not, Joseph, all of those bad things that you're worried about won't really happen. Fear not, Uh, Joseph, you're actually just overreacting, and you need to calm down a little bit, and everything will be okay. Right? Fear not. You, you know what? You're going to find success in a better situation for you and your family because God is in this. doesn't say any of that. When they got to Joseph's family's house in Bethlehem, you know what they had to do? Joseph's family said, you can go sleep where the animals sleep. Right? They would then uh, a few years later have to flee to Egypt because Herod the king had ordered the murder of all of the young sons. They would have to continue to bear the social implications of this illegitimate pregnancy. And for what it's worth, they could even tell the truth. And nobody's going to believe them. Because how many people are going to believe you when you say, oh yeah, his dad's God. So it's not going to happen. Life would be hard for them. Which means that Joseph's view of hope had to change. Right? When the angel says, fear not, he's not saying, I'm going to give you all of the things you've been hoping for. When the angel says, fear not, he's actually inviting Joseph to put his hope in a different place. Right? It wasn't, take Mary as your wife because everything will be okay. It was, take Mary as your wife because God is keeping his promise. It wasn't raise this child because you'll eventually be successful again, Joseph. It was raise this child because God is bringing salvation. Were there legitimately fearful and messy things that Joseph would have to face in obeying this call? Absolutely. It is wrong to pretend that there were not going to be harder and harder things that Joseph was going to have to face because of this decision. And we think, we tend to think, obey God... 
do what he says, and everything's going to get easier. It'll all be okay, because our hope is often in better circumstances. But that's not always true. Just ask Christians who are persecuted around the world. They obey God, and their life gets significantly harder as they follow through with that. So let's just clarify. The angel's invitation to Joseph, away from fear, it's not a promise of better circumstances. It is an invitation to put his hope in a different place. So this is essentially what the angel tells Joseph. Joseph, obedient faith offers a hope better than escape. Your obedient faith offers you a hope better than escape. So this morning, are you in a mess where it's obvious that God is actually calling you to stay in the mess? God keeps his promises. God is bringing salvation and your obedient faith offers you a hope better than escape. Are you facing a mess that feels like it has no solutions or steps that will create resolution for you in this situation? You know what? God is faithful. God sent Jesus. Jesus died and rose from death. So your enduring obedient faith offers a hope better than escape. That's what the angel tells Joseph. So then watch how Joseph responds. Verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph trusted God's plan. And his life was harder because of it. He lost social clout because of it. He was viewed as weak in his society because of it. He was the butt of other people's jokes because of it. And his professional life very likely faced upheaval because of it. But the guy got to raise the Savior of the world. He got to teach Jesus about the law and the prophets. He got to show Jesus what it looked like to work hard. He got to display an example of what it means to be a just man to Jesus. Because Jesus was fully human, what that means is that Joseph actually, in his raising of Jesus, left an eternal imprint on Jesus. Right? And on top of that, so not only does Joseph get the influence of raising the Savior of the world... But then following that, Joseph gets to be a recipient of God's salvation. Joseph gets caught up in this grand plan of what God was doing in the world to defeat sin and death. So Joseph's life was not easy. It was actually really, really messy. And you know what? That's okay. Because he had a hope for himself that was better than escaping the mess. So so what? So what this morning? Uh, number one, my encouragement to you is do not get lost in the mess. Do not get lost in the mess. Um, uh, Debbie, she leads worship up here, right? She, uh, she sometimes uses this illustration that I think is so helpful. Uh, she talks about grief and works, thinks about grief a lot, has worked through it, has done a lot of training on how to help other people through grief, right? This is something that she's done. She takes this piece of paper and... Uh, she, said, she puts it like right up against your face. This piece of paper is your grief, right? And, and when we go through grief, 
or pain or heartache or whatever the mess might be, our tendency is to hold that piece of paper right up to our face. And what can you see when that piece of paper is up against your face? All you see is the mess. All you see is the grief. All you see is the thing that is weighing heavy upon you because it is right here in front of your face. And then she says, but let's talk about God's perspective for a second. She's like, imagine that God is taking this piece of paper from in front of your face and he is just kind of moving it out to the, the farthest star that you can imagine seeing. Right? And so as you see the grief slowly get removed from your field of vision, you begin to recognize the other things that God has been doing, the other things that God is up to. And what is God doing for those who exercise obedient faith, for people who trust him? He's giving you a promise of an eternal future where pain and sorrow will be wiped away forever. He is working out a plan to bring justice to every injustice that exists. He is giving you his presence with you in the middle of every messy situation. He is giving you people who love you and check in on you in your church and help you stay focused in him. He is giving you the hope that extends peace to you in the middle of messy circumstances. So don't get lost in the mess. If you are a Jesus follower, you have the miraculous promise of being caught up into the very same story that Joseph was caught up in when the angel appeared to him and say, hey, remember those words that were spoken 700 years ago? Remember that plan that God was working out through history? You're part of that story. You're a significant linchpin in that story. Oh, and by the way, everybody who trusts in Jesus after that point, you're part of the same story and the same plan that God is working out throughout the ages. You have the same hope that Joseph had. So don't get lost in the mess. Number two, if you haven't done so, start following Jesus. If you have not yet placed your life and your trust in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, follow Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Trust him because he is the one. Like all of history is kind of built around him. And what he is able to accomplish. Because he came to earth. We are weighed down by the messes in our world that exist because of sin. And Jesus came at a particular point in time. And uh, lived on the earth and performed miracles. And then went to a cross so that he might die as a sacrifice for sin. And pay for it before God. To earn us the right to become children of God. That we could uh, have a relationship with our Father in heaven who we have spent the entirety of our lives saying, no thanks, we've got this, we can do this without you. And so the invitation to you this morning, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, is to start following Jesus. If you want to do that, I'd encourage you after the service today, uh, find me or find anybody that you've seen up on the platform today. Um, just tell somebody, like, how do, I, how do I trust in Jesus? How do I take that next step? We, somebody wants to help you do that. So please find us so that you can take that next step of faith. Number three. Accept that God's plan may be far different from your own. How many people planned on COVID? The mess that it brought into every facet of our lives. How many people planned on losing loved ones? How many people plan on losing a job or losing money in some way? But those things happen. 
And the reality that those things can happen creates legitimate fear. But the only things that will dispel the fear and bring peace is a hope in something greater. So listen about that hope here in Romans chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what he's saying is actually like kind of this moment of empathy. The Apostle Paul is writing about the pains of childbirth. He's saying that the creation is actually recognizing the weight of the mess. The mess is weighing on creation. Nothing in creation likes the mess. Every part of creation is groaning. And then in verse 23, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves people who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. We're tired of the mess. The mess weighs upon it because we're waiting eagerly for something much better than just getting out of the mess. We wait eagerly for adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Alliance Bible Church, this morning, my encouragement to you would be to find your hope and something better.